we have been absolutely unable to set any kind of quality to our medical experts. Here's our biggest problem. We're our worst enemy. If something doesn't make any sense at all, somebody somewhere is making a lot of money off of it. Our neighborhoods will fight your neighborhoods anytime. Hey, boys and girls, Rick Bucata here, Greg Henry across the table, and our guest today. We're at the Scientific Assembly in Seattle, so we're, we have a, the opportunity uh, at this conference to talk to some of the experts relatively painlessly, you know, without having to fly them in, pay their, pay their way, and all this other stuff kind of thing. And, Rick, <laughs> we, we've hit the mother load today. We've got the Jim Roberts you and I are not worthy. Mother Lode, you said? <laughs> okay, just, just so we're clear. Hey, listen, I want to congratulate you on the most recent edition of uh, Roberts and Hedges that came out uh, maybe about three or four months ago. Thank you. You know, it's going to make you a lot of money, help you retire kind of thing. <laughs> and and that, little, that little sucker must be four inches thick, you know. I, I keep on wondering, how come you do this book every four years when it Chest tube is a chest tube is a chest tube. You, it's a, it's amazing that you're able to make a new book every four years. You know, it's, it's increased its sales every edition, which is very unusual for a book. Really. The, the other thing is he's added procedures which are unbelievable. In that book, is the answer to life. They'll teach <laughs> you how to take out a cataract. You know, do a a minor. Uh, cardiac procedure. I mean, these guys have really gone into Well, it. now they're getting into the uh, media in that they have a lot of videos, a lot of drawings um, uh, to d demonstrate how to do these procedures. They've really upped the, upped the bar here in terms of the, what nobody's going to compete with Jim. And if you pay that extra $10,000 fee, Jim will come to your department and show you how to do it. So that's really good. I'll give, I think I'll give away a book for 10000 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, so the idea here was to ask Jim and our other uh, guests that we hope to have today, if they choose to come over here. Grace us, yes. Yeah, is what's going on? Do you have any interesting cases? Do you see any, any trends? And so Jim basically was, wants to talk about the... The most recent three cases that have a special little twist that we, we ought to know about. So, Jim, take it away. All right. Well, we, st we still get a lot of the same cases, appendicitis, uh, PEs, meningitis. Strokes are still... Meningitis? Yeah, meningitis. Still there. Mostly kids, un unvaccinated kids often. Uh, and a lot of viral stuff, uh, yeah, some uh, herpes, encephalitis, and mm -hmm. so on. But I've mostly concentrated on... Uh, toxicology-related cases and turned down most of the other ones. So the, the three I wanted to talk about all have a little bit of a twist to them. Uh, the first one was the one that I actually had to turn down because I didn't think I could defend it. <coughs> and it was a, always seems it's a psychiatric patient who's got problems and they're difficult and nobody nobody's straightforward. And this patient, man about 30, had, had uh, overdosed three or four times in the past and nothing really happened to him. And uh, he had chronic back pain, and he had a big prescription for MS Contin. And uh, he took a bottle of MS Contin, all the pills, in front of his brother in a car. He called the ambulance. The ambulance came. They bring the bottle in, and he signed in as a MS Contin overdose. Um, and they had the bottle there. It was actually empty. Uh, can't recall how many pills were in there, but there was like a, almost a month's supply of pills. So MS Contin, as you know, pretty potent drug, respiratory depression, uh, and it's a long-acting, slow-release drug, and it just didn't resonate with the staff. Uh, the guy was a pain in the neck, uh, 
very difficult to deal with. <clears throat> said he didn't take anything, but they had the empty bottle. And uh, they watched him for about two and a half hours. Didn't give him any Narcan. Uh, his vital signs are always the same. And after two and a half hours, he became such an annoyance that uh, they said, well, you're probably okay. You didn't take anything because you have no symptoms. They sent him to a psychiatric department where he had an intake uh, and was put in a room. Uh, got, got late at night, and they were going to you know, take care of him in the morning. He had a, what's called a 302 in Pennsylvania. We have a, a legal hold on him. And he was found dead the next day. And uh, autopsy showed a very high level of morphine in his body. Uh, the only drug, and he died from a simple, straightforward morphine overdose that was delayed but for two reasons. One, it's a slow-reacting drug, and I've seen this a number of times, probably a dozen dozen cases in my career. Um, and also, I think that when you get an overdose, it delays its own absorption for, and gastric emptying for right. some, some period of time. So you, so maybe you would take a one MS content, you'd start to feel it in an hour, an hour, two or three. Uh, but this is, you know, these are five, six, seven hours after you take a, a very, you know, lethal dose. And, um, you know, some people even give Narcan prophylactically and send them home after, the, if they had a couple of symptoms and the Narcan wears off and they seem to be okay. But, you know, the bottom line of this is any long-acting or oral opioid overdose ought to be admitted regardless of the symptoms and regardless of the findings. Uh, probably for at least, uh, I'd say, why not 24 hours? You know, probably by 12 they're all going to have some sort of symptoms. Yeah, we think so. Yeah, but but uh, it depends where you admit them to. You can't admit them to the floor where nobody's going to check on them. This know? sounds to be like the ideal case for observation uh, unit off the emergency department. Right, or a place where they actually observe you, not like our observation <laughs> area. <laughs> no observation area. Yeah, the non-observation. We're going to send you that to the department. Yeah, right. it's yeah. very hard to give a course on non-observation <laughs> medicine. However, that's very difficult. And they yeah. pull their IVs out, and, <coughs> and uh, they, uh, they take their pulse ox off, and you know, they want to stay in the monitor. And they're always uh, they're paying the neck, and uh, it's just might have to sedate them, yeah. sedate the overdose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is this is not the first one I've seen of this. In fact, I almost killed a two-year-old back in my younger days. In, when I was still a resident, a kid came in and drank his mother's morphine uh, liquid. She had cancer. Mm-hmm. And we watched her for about an hour. And the kid was you know, running around. Uh, the parents wanted to, you know, weren't sure how much he drank. Uh, and I said, well, you know, he doesn't have any symptoms. And it's morphine, you know, it's a powerful drug for a two-year-old. Sent him home. And about half an hour later, they bring him back blue, uh, hardly, wow. hardly breathing. Um, Scary. And actually got a uh, external jugular Narcan stick on the kid, and he woke right up, and he was fine. But uh, I learned my lesson on on oral narcotic overdoses. It just, <laughs> you, just, you can't you can't let them go. You know, every one of us has a case in our career where we say, "Thank you, God." Yeah. For some reason, something happened that they were looking over us, and and we had that save. Uh, I had a similar case early in my career, and I can tell you, it puts the fear of God in you. Well, you know, it's interesting. The case I had was a, a young guy with a kidney stone, and we uh, gave him lots of MS, 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 and uh, he was still having a lot of pain, so he got admitted to the hospital. And um, about an hour and a half after he's admitted, code blue, floor three. What the heck? So we would go up to the ER docs would go up to the, there. They're doing uh, CPR on this young body. Usually, used to go into the CV, these codes, and you, you're looking at you know 60, 70, 80 year old. This is a third. <laughs> no, right, no, right, wait I'm a sorry. Minute. I forget it. You and I resemble <laughs> that remark. I'd be very careful here. 
in any case, they're, they're doing CPR in this young body, and it was my patient, and he uh, had a respiratory arrest up there, and he didn't have a cardiac arrest, or had a respiratory arrest, and it was like, there but the grace of God, you know, we gave him his Narcan, woke up and said, holy smokes. Yep. Um, People give Dilaudid, two milligrams of Dilaudid is a lot of Dilaudid for a narcotic naive patient, and yeah, you know, give somebody with abdominal pain, an older person with abdominal pain, two milligrams of Dilaudid, that's a heavy dose, and then they'll repeat it again. Well, you know, they talk about all these people who die of uh, opiate overdoses, and uh, because of, and it's all about prescription medications. And I never really thought that you know it had anything to do with us. We don't know. We don't give oxycontin. I mean, nobody's writes that, that in the ER. And honestly, you know, I don't know. I I don't know anything about. It. I know it's a, supposedly long acting, but I my experience is very limited. But they talk about all of these deaths that occur, and it's got to be due to this this drug in particular. Yeah, well, oxycontin is is a, is a, a select, but they they grind that up, you know. They they put a formulation that now that Not makes like it, uh, and they also put up some sort of binder in it that makes it a, a gel-like substance that almost impossible to to shoot in, to shoot up. Yeah, <laughs> unless it turns you, into concrete, <laughs> unless you put it in the Cuisinart, <laughs> you know, and blend it. But uh, yeah, you can still snort it and uh, you know, crush it up and it, uh, it, and. And Al Sacchetti, our next uh, victim, just walked in the door there. So Dr. Uh, uh, Roberts is talking about OxyContin uh, overdoses that basically nothing happens in a couple hours, and they send them home and they, they die. And he had a case that he uh, couldn't defend, so he talked about it. All right. So we, we, have, we have some take-home lessons here. Number one, if it's a heavy dose of uh, an opioid of some kind, keep them a while. Take a good look. Don't think in an hour you're going to know what's going on. Maybe in 12 hours you will know what's going on. Well, it sounds like they just kind of ignored the fact that there's this freaking empty bottle. Yes, exactly. Like, details, details, you know. Yeah, and the, when you have an annoying patient, it's always, you always uh, alter your approach a little bit, too. Yep. Yeah, thank God he's going home, you know. And the yeah. nurses say, can he go out? Can he go yeah, out? Right, exactly. Okay, case number two, doctor. Uh, the second case was uh, one that, that I'm still not sure what, what actually happened, but it was a, a woman who came in with lower abdominal pain and a low-grade fever, uh, and um, a fair amount of pain. You know, they're always 10 out of 10, but, uh, and she had some vaginal bleeding, and she had a history of fibroids. It was her only, her only history. Uh, she knew she had fibroids and uh, had, was on no medication. <clears throat> so the doctor did a, an ultrasound and found some fibroids, but he wasn't quite satisfied that it was causing the fever, and she said that the pain was totally different from her fibroid pain that she'd had a number of times in the past. So, and the laboratories were nonspecific. She wasn't pregnant. So he figured he'd do a CAT scan with, uh, this was about three years ago, with IV and oral contrast. Now, we're hardly doing any with IV contrast anymore, but uh, um, he wanted to figure out, he thought maybe she had an abscess, so, you know, pelvic abscess, because she had some vague history of maybe having a, uh, a pile of salpings in the past. Um, but So he sends it over to CAT scan, and right after she gets to die, she has she becomes unresponsive. And they bring her back to the ER, and her blood pressure is 250 over 130. Wow. Uh, she doesn't have any hives. She doesn't have any redness. She's unconscious. And um, they're trying to figure out what the heck happened. You know, most dye reactions are hypotension. Right. And, 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 and they, they were using the, the lower osmolar dye, not the isoosmolar, but <clears throat> the lower osmolar one, which is 100,000 or 200,000. Right, right. They usually are 
minor reactions anyway. Uh, she had not had a test dose. Um, it came out that she had a shellfish allergy later on during the evaluation, uh, which is now a myth. A uh, shellfish allergy is no more than uh, is not really a, a risk factor for the dye. Um, and uh, she had some sort of penicillin allergy, but she was on penicillin for five years, and she developed an allergy. So I don't think that would think that was bogus. But um, so they, uh, they didn't know, not sure what to do. So they, uh, she was there for about the, the blood pressure stayed up for about 45 minutes, and then they did figure, well, maybe it's an anaphylactoid reaction. They gave her Benadryl and Salimedrol and a, a 0.3 of Epi sub Q. Was the already 250, 130 Well, her pressure, pressure had come down to about 200 over 120. Uh, but still, 0.3 of epi sub Q. I mean, asthmatics have blood pressures like that, and the pressure goes down when you give them, right. you give them a small dose of epi. And they sent her back to the CAT scanner, and she had uh, three aneurysms, one of which had bled, and she had diffuse uh, cerebral edema. In her head, you mean? In her head. Yeah, cerebral uh, middle meningeal artery aneurysm. Uh, and um, mild herniation. A lot of blood, uh, and uh, they basically, uh, she was in the hospital for about a month, and she's fairly active, but she, she can't work, and you know, she's got a lot of medical issues. And she also has, a, um, you know, she just, I'm not sure how much of it's real or not, but she can't think, and she can't remember, and so on. Uh, and uh, they sued the doctor because, uh, one, they uh, didn't do a test, they sued the radiologist because they didn't do a test dose. Is that standard of care? <clears throat> well, I don't think so. I don't think so either. It, it isn't, but in their policy, which is about five years old, it says, oh. uh, you know, do a test dose. Oh, bad. You know, to, 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 they say to do a test dose for patency of the IV or to see if there's any reaction, right? So, and, and no one in the department even knew that that policy existed except the lawyers found it. Um, and uh, then, of course, they, you know, she had this allergy that they said because she had an allergy, she should have been treated with prednisone and so on, but uh, that allergy was no known allergies when she checked in. Um, we still don't know she had an allergic reaction. Right, well, yeah, you can get a hypertensive crisis from from the dye, I found out. Uh, I wasn't aware of that myself, but uh, that is one of the anaphylactoid type reactions you can get. So she had the aneurysm, nobody knew she had the aneurysm. She bled, probably either bled and got hypertensive because uh, she was 45 minutes hypertensive before she got the epinephrine. But uh, but the interesting part of it is that they sued the ER doctor because they said she didn't need a CAT scan. Well, that's interesting. And if she had never had the CAT scan, she would have never had the dye reaction. Uh, and they said that uh, this is an obvious case of uterine fibroids. You had the fibroids on the ultrasound. She had some vaginal bleeding. and uh, Fever? Yeah. Well, the fever went away after a couple hours in the ER with, with some Tylenol. It didn't come back, and her white count was normal. Uh, so it's uh, the, 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 the main ER, they're, they're suing the radiologists, of course, uh, because they didn't treat her for anaphylactoid reaction in the radiology department. And they never, they never even chalked it up to that. They had all these, re these cases when they report it, they're supposed to report all their dye reactions. They didn't report it as a dye reaction. On the CAT scan reading, it said, patient had a possible reaction to the dye, but this is unclear. So the radiologist didn't even think that she had that. It's just that it... It happened to be uh, uh, within 10 minutes of getting the dye. Did they find uh, an MD, FACEP, who testified to the fact that uh, this is standard of care in emergency departments, 
that this CT wasn't required, all these sorts of things. Because the other side of this coin is if he'd missed something, then his butt would have been uh, in trouble. So, I, you know, it's always hard for me to believe that somebody who does what we do for a living actually stood up and said that in court. Well, I happen to know the expert witness, and he says it a lot, stuff like that. He <laughs> yeah. said that uh, this was a straightforward case of, of a fibroid that didn't need a CAT scan. It was over-treating them, and uh, had you not treated them, she wouldn't have had the reaction. And, of course, he's now blaming the dye for causing the reaction, which is, again, another step. Yes, he had to, he had to assume <clears throat> that that's actually well, what that happened. Well, that sounds, I mean, it sounds like causality. Yeah, it does. Uh, and and I, my, when I first looked at this case, I said, well, she wasn't hypotensive, but you can get a hypertensive. In fact, in, in their, in, in their um, policies, there's a acute hypertensive reaction as oh, one great. of that's good. As one of, <laughs> you know, which they treat with sub, supposed to treat with sublingual nitroglycerin. Right. Yeah. Rick, the, the question isn't whether it's, it's causally related to giving the dye. It it's 10 minutes after it happened. Yeah. That could be the case. However, the real issue in law is, was it reasonable for the physician to order the CT scan? And I would think with a confusing pattern in this woman, uh, that was not an unreasonable thing for him to do. No, I, no, I, I agree with you. A fever, lower abdominal pain, um, and pain that was very different from her previous fibroids. Uh, I think it requires a CAT scan now. Yeah. Whether you require the dye or not is another story. Well, that's, that is true because even even in diverticulitis, you don't need contrast for that oral IV. Nothing uh, in diverticulitis. So well, he said he thought it was an abscess, and the radiologist said, "Well, you know, the, no, the you well, ought to use dye if it's an abscess." And well, you know, in diverticulitis, they're looking for uh, air outside the bowel lumen, and they're looking for abscesses. Right. Um, so I guess it, I guess it's not a, a fault to do dye, but, but you know, I think our listeners should know that it's not essential to do dye in these cases. We can't drop this right now. What happened in the case? Well, it's still ongoing. Uh, and, uh, we don't, we don't know how, uh, the, the, um, the discovery is going to be. All the experts are in and there's one ER doc who says that she didn't need the CAT scan and, and they're basing their case on the fact that. You know, of course, the chart was very skimpy about the findings, and the doctor had, she was there for something like 12 hours before they did the CAT scan, and the, the doctor had one note on it, and that was after the resident had seen her. Uh, he actually turned it over to another doctor. Uh, that other doctor didn't examine the patient did before she went to radiology. She just said, well, the, you know, it was turnover. She had a CAT scan ordered, and I was just waiting for the CAT scan to be yeah. done. So. Well, this sounds like the standard cluster collection we get yeah. into where one doc passes it off to another doc. They've been around We're just for waiting hours. for the CAT scan results. Yes. Okay, send her home. Send her home, exactly. Well, 10 out of 10 pain and a fever. In, 10 in out of 10? Yeah. For a fibroid, please. Yeah. Rick, it's, we're lucky it wasn't 12 out of 10. Okay. All right, one more, Jim. One more case. Okay, the other is... is a little bizarre, um, and it was a uh, a woman had bipolar disease. You know, those people are always difficult to deal with and hard to really figure out what's going on with them. Uh, she'd been treated for bipolar for about 15 years, and um, she uh, someone can a a, a a a physician who does chelation therapy uh, in get his those office lead levels out of you convinced yeah. her that. Her multiple problems, forgetfulness, um, me- memory issues, uh, sexual ab- libido uh, issues, ability to function normally in life, and you know, drive a car without feeling terrible, anything, 
was due to all these bad chemicals that were in her body and that they she could do better if she got chelation with uh, honestly i've known some people who have had that chelation surgery. in fact all three of us know somebody the same person who's had been chelated yeah well you know some people seem to get better from it maybe it's placebo i i don't think there's any medical knowledge behind it i think it's very very sketchy medicine that uh, that it does any good. Right. Yeah, of course, you you give them she, she during chelation she got magnesium and uh, a couple other vitamins that the chelation would take out. So it's sort of like <laughs> Rick's. That's got to make you happy, Doctor Doctor Magnesium, Mag- Dr. magnesium over here. Make yeah. anybody feel yeah. better. So she had twelve chelation therapies every two weeks, and she seemed to be doing fine. You know, records are pretty sparse. Um, uh, they had the person in the office who was not a tech, not a nurse, mix up the chelation therapy with EDTA they used. Yeah. EDTA. Uh, small, you know, they didn't even put the dose down. We didn't know what dose of EDTA she got. Uh, but the 13th time she went, she said, my knee really hurts. To which the doctor said, well, we'll add colchicine to the, <laughs> to the chelation. Now, colchicine's been taken off the market. The IV colchicine's been taken off the market Nasty for, a couple, stuff. for a couple of years. Ooh, it can be ugly. Yeah. It's very small therapeutic index to it. Yeah, it worked great for I used to give it for gout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have pers- we all did. I have personally received IV colchicine for gout. Uh, well, even isn't the oral colchicine that you give it till they got GI upset and back off one pill or well, something? Until they, like they vomited. Yeah. They, they finally changed that. But the Washington Manual about 20 years ago said you give it every hour until they get diarrhea. By that time, you've overdosed them by three or four pills. And the diarrhea is a lot worse, really. I mean, it's not loose stools. It is tremendous tenismus. And so yeah. people are, you know, familial Mediterranean fever uh, is about the only indication for gout. Although now they're, uh, um, what else are they, for, for colchicine? They're also using colchicine for pericarditis now, for a recurrent uh, chronic pericarditis. But small doses, you know, 0.6 pills, you know, milligrams a day. But it's basically an anti-inflammatory right. response of some kind. Right. So this guy didn't know where he got, he can't remember where he got the colchicine. He got, he got his colchicine made up at a variety of pharmacies and um, gave, gave it to her. And about four hours later, she started to have some various symptoms, weakness, dizziness, nauseated, uh, some abdominal cramping. So she went to the emergency room and the ED doctor said recently had chelation therapy from a chiropractor you know so he said all oh, chiropractors were not, not allowed to give anything so he didn't he just basically said and she has some diary some uh, abdominal complaints give her some reglan and some fluids and her labs were okay uh and uh, after about two or three hours he said she's feeling back to normal since her home um and he didn't know what she got she uh uh, it was about midnight, so he would not have been able to get in, in touch with the key later. I'm not sure he would have changed his, his course anyway, nor would he have had to. Uh, two days later, she went back to another doctor, another ER with similar symptoms. They did the same thing. Her laboratory tests were normal. The next day, four days later, she goes to another hospital, and they admit her. And she has some mild to moderate colchicine-like uh, uh, colchicine poisoning. She had pancytopenia. Um, and some a little bit of worsening renal failure. Her white count went down to about th- you know two and a half to three thousand, and her platelets down to fifty thousand, uh, which you know you get with colchicine. Uh, and uh, she was in the hospital, got hydration therapy for about three days. She had a bunch of consultants. She had some neurologists who was convinced it was encephalopathy secondary to colchicine, which I could not find as occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one could figure out the dose. 
Uh, you know, there were a bunch of deaths from colchicine a while back, which prompted the FDA to look at it uh, because of the compounding errors. They got 10 times the dose. So normally you get like 1 to 2 milligrams IV, which is, you know, probably shouldn't hurt anybody. Uh, and uh, she, for now three years, have had all the symptoms she had before the, the chelation therapy. Uh, plus, they're all worse. Uh, she she was able to get an RN before she she just started this. Now she can't work as an RN. Um, she can't sleep. She aches all over. She, her hair fell out, which you can also get with colchicine. So she probably had some mild colchicine toxicity. But the doctor, they're suing the doctor mainly because he lives in Philadelphia. And all the other care was done outside of Philadelphia. So if they can keep him in the suit, they can um, try to get the court Trial. Be specific in, in here, Jim. They're suing which doctor? The chelator? No, well, they're suing the chelator. Right. And what a piece of work that guy is. You got, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's now retired. Yeah. He can't remember anything. They're suing his assistant who had no training or uh, background whatsoever who mixed up the stuff. She can't remember what she did or where she got it. And it was only like two years ago. Uh, but they're suing the first ER doctor. Not suing the second ER doctor who's the same as the first ER doctor because he's in the, in the community hospital. But they're suing the Philadelphia-based doctor. You want a Philadelphia jury. Because you want a Philadelphia jury. Yeah. yeah. So And a Philadelphia lawyer. And there is no treatment for colchicine poisoning. I mean, you can give granulite, uh, um, stimulating, colony-stimulating, uh, if you're really pancytopenic, but she didn't require any of that. So she re- just required supportive care. And, um, you know, nothing really changed. Her renal function went back to, to, back to normal. Uh, but she has all these... Chronic static encephalopathy is what this neurologist says she has from colchicine, which I can't find anywhere. What are they saying the emergency doctor should have done well, at they, that moment in time? Yeah, they said he should have realized that chelation therapy can be dangerous, should have found out how she was chelated, should have admitted to the hospital uh, because colchicine uh, you know, can be uh, a nasty drug, even though she had no signs. She had some signs and symptoms of mild colchicine. Even there's n- even though there's no p- specific medication. No, there's no way to reverse it. Um, you can you can treat the pancytopenia if it gets bad, but you can't help the renal failure. You can't help the diarrhea. So now that you've suppressed her immune system and dropped her white cells, we should put her in a hospital. That's right. Which would be the perfect place. Right next to the Mercer Ward. Right next <laughs> to the Mercer Ward, exactly. And, ac- and, and just across from the HIV center. Well, it sounds like she had a bad outcome, but it doesn't sound like the doctor could have done anything well, about it. I think it. she had a bad outcome. She had a treatment. Well, there's four years well, of uh, worsening variety of her symptoms. Yeah, but all those symptoms are in, are in her medical records for years. Yeah, but it's worse, Jim. Yeah, right. Much worse. Exacerbation is the term I think they use. So, Jim, don't take us in suspense. What happened? Still still in the the works, so um, we'll see. I think the ER doctor will be dropped. You know, your danger, the danger to you as a physician has more to do with your zip code than with your with your medical knowledge or the number of times you've taken your boards or anything else. If that case had taken place in Bismarck, North Dakota, it wouldn't be a case. But you know, you get into certain of these legal hell holes of America, certain parts of of uh, Los Angeles County, Wayne County, Detroit, Cook County, Chicago, Miami. Philadelphia, Dade County, Miami, and and you know what? The incidence of suit is like twenty five times what it is 
in uh, South Dakota. Well, this doctor didn't help himself. I mean, he gave in his deposition he'd never seen or, uh, or knew nothing about chelation therapy. Yet, when the patient told him she had chelation therapy, he just blew it right off. I mean, mm-hmm. He even put on the chart that she had it. But that was all he put down. And there's two or three little lines. of It's a T-chart, so he has like two things, dizziness, nausea, uh, and uh, chronic cough are circular is the only symptoms. And then, you know. Have you read the uh, plaintiff's expert against the emergency department's deposition? It's the same one in the other case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, It's a different one, but I know know that one too. Yeah, they said he should have called the the chelator therapy doctor, found out what it was when he realized it was colchicine, uh, he should have known what colchicine can do, even though the doctor wouldn't have been able to tell him the dose. And, and there wouldn't have been anything and, he could have given. And there wasn't anything you could have done for him. Exactly. Except admit her to the hospital. Sound like she groping. Was, she was admitted four days later, and all they do is give her IV fluids and had a bunch of consultants take a look at her. Who, Some of them said uh, it could have been a viral syndrome. You know, A couple of them, they have this neurologist who's now one of their chief. Well, I guess the question is, um, we in the, I think the last um, month we did, this we talked about the decrease in the number of suits a dramatic decrease in the number of suits but i take it that philadelphia is still a hotbed of injustice yes well it is and and the the leading money-making law firm in philadelphia now will not hire a lawyer unless he's also a doctor klein inspector yep Wow. I've wow, opposed wow. Klein Inspector people, so every and they always had a second attorney at the table mm-hmm. who was MD, JD, BFD, and uh, they were there to do a specific thing, which was to whisper things in the other guy's ear to attack me. Mm-hmm. And, and they always have about 12 experts, mostly from Ivy League medical schools, uh, and very well you know, well-experienced. Yeah, uh, we shouldn't say bad things about Yale, but they tend to turn out a lot of experts. I guess they need to pay them a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) So do you have any any things else you'd like to say about uh, what's going on? Well, what I I say to all my doctors is you don't know when you're going to get sued. You oftentimes don't get sued for big mistakes you make and for bad outcomes, but you got to write every chart, you know, with the, the thought in mind that you, know, you do your best documentation, you could get sued on even a sprained ankle. You know, you get RSD from a sprained ankle. So, you know, you just got to just got to write uh, enough in the chart that shows you're a careful, conscientious, and prudent doctor, and uh, you tell your patients uh, what's going on. Jim, thanks very much for coming over. I know Lydia is here, and you're going out to do something this afternoon. I'm going out to the aquarium with my crazy three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've all, uh, at least I've met your three-year-old. Good luck. All right. All right, I'm going to push a button here. So, uh, Al Sacchetti heard uh, a good deal of what Jim had to say. Al Al lives and works across the river from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Do you have the similar issues with regarding to um, malpractice lawsuits? I I will tell you, we we work in a a wonderful city. Uh, It's Camden, New Jersey. Poorest city in the nation, occasionally the I mean, most it's in dangerous. Detroit. Come on. Yeah, no. yeah. It's, I always uh, hate it when these guys think they can beat us in Detroit. That's just wrong. <laughs> per capita. We have worse <laughs> neighborhoods than you. Listen, listen. Our neighborhoods will fight your neighborhoods <laughs> anytime. Now, you got the volume. We've got the, the per capita. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, okay. even Detroit has lost its per uh, capita. They all, there's nobody, there's nobody there there. anymore. They're, so they, you they may, left. Yeah. You may be technically incorrect we, now, we but be, in any but, case. But the, the people there are, are just generally been wonderful. It, it, it's not regarded at all as a high litigation area like Philadelphia. 
Uh, and, and it's just across the river. Literally just across the river. And even the surrounding affluent suburbs, like every, everywhere else, there's this, you know, Cherry central Hill. pocket. Yeah, and the surrounding affluent suburbs, nicest people in the world. But, but the difference is the nice people in the world come to us. If, if you're a pompous, entitled um, individual, you're not coming to our hospital. You're going to go the other direction to a, a nice, you know, hospital out in the suburbs. So the people who come to us are generally very, very nice. And yeah. it, it's not a high risk area, but we still are seeing cases. We still get cases. Um, I, I will say that it, of the cases we've gotten, when I review them f- within our department, the care is usually very, very good. And it, it's, you know, a bad outcome, an adverse event, whatever. And in, inevitably, you look at it and you go, you know, if I saw that patient, I would have done the exact same thing. Well, I, my usual uh, response is, I'm so glad I wasn't working that day. There but the grace of God. Yeah, there but the grace of God, because my name would have been on that paper. Absolutely. But I, I do some, some expert work, and, and <laughs> I am very, very disappointed at at the behavior of the quote-unquote medical experts. I mean, it is, and on both sides. I've seen people defending cases that are like, come on, you're making that up. And I've seen at the same time people criticizing physicians' care. And I think one of the most depressing things is you look at, for as good as medicine is at advancing the care of patients, and you can criticize us on a lot of levels. We do, in general, do a good job of figuring out how to take care of a lot of diseases. We have been absolutely unable to set any kind of quality to our medical experts. And as a result, what we see happening is more and more of our care is being dictated by these, you know, three, four standard deviations off the mean type of comments that we're getting from medical experts where the the docs are now saying, hey, I got sued or my, my colleague got sued for this. Therefore, every patient I see from now on is getting a CAT scan. Well, I, I, that's the exact wrong response. Right. I mean, we don't fight legal issues by translating what the court system said to, to medical care. What we need to do is enforce things at the expert level. And let me get off on one small tangent here. A lot of states have had the, what they called the Fry standard, which was, well, do some doctors do it? Now, pretty much they're moving toward the federal standard. Uh, which is which is the Daubert standard, which says that you better have a pretty substantial part of the medical community that agrees with your testimony. Now you can have a great fight in this room at this at this uh, meeting about TPA, and it's very hard to have taken one side or the other in if they came in within the three hours and they met the criteria. That's a tough case. But we also have plenty of testimony. I've seen plenty of it in cases where uh, the the expert was basically full of crap. Nobody does that. Yeah, they're asserting things that really are n- nowhere near the standard of care. No, not even close to the standard. But here's our biggest problem. We're our worst enemy. Number one, lawyers can't testify to standard of care, only doctors. And 90% of the docs that I work with and we win, right? I said, now are you going to take their testimony to the ethics committee at ASEP? And once they've won, all that fire in their belly has now dissipated and they don't start the process. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think that helps. I don't think the ethics committee at ASEP helps because um, I, am, in fact, wound up defending a doc who was an expert who got taken to the ethics committee. And it, it, it really, you know, when I looked at it, and, and look, I'm 
<clears throat> I'm really passionate about the subject. His testimony was actually very reasonable. It, it was not unreasonable at all. This person was just annoyed that, that they had lost. And I think that's the wrong case. The problem with taking it to the ethics committee at, at ASAP is ASAP says, okay, you know, your arguments are ridiculous. You're sanctioned. And the next time this person goes to court and they say, weren't you sanctioned by ASAP? Yes. Well, doesn't that mean you're, you're misconstruing the standard of care? And they go, I'm standing up for the patient. I'm, I'm not part of that conspiracy of silence, which people buy into. Well, some do and some don't. Let me tell you, if a plaintiff's lawyer knows that there's a letter out there, a letter of censure, or we have, ex- we have expelled one doctor from the college, kicked him right out. Do you think they now want him as their expert? They'd rather not, the issue, not have the issue come up. I, I, you know, I, I will respectfully disagree that, that it carries no weight. Because Although I think it does. I, I, but I, I've seen, you know, usually these are people who've got a long litany of ridiculous cases. And I've come up against them, and I know that they're sanctioned. And it doesn't slow them down. They're still, you know... You know, getting up and, and making up their, their stories. Well, the other yeah. point, and Jerry Hoffman brings this up, and I think it's, I hate to agree with him. Have we ever uh, sanctioned a doctor who defends emergency physicians? We've started one of those actions. Yes. Well, that, that, that is uh, pretty extraordinary. Here's In fact, you think- only need one thing, and I just went through this with the, with the uh, head of, uh, of, of our staff at ASEP who handles all of these cases. The only thing you need to have standing is one member of the college say, start this investigation. And we have had at least a couple of these letters go in, and one guy, they have at least started against a, a, a defense expert who they said, this ridiculous testimony. Now, we don't have a decision on that yet, Rick. We haven't censured anybody, but it is in the process. I bet you a dollar doesn't happen. Well, if you look at every the 34 that started, that went all the way, then there's 16 or 17 that actually got the hearing, sort of like a trial. Uh, half of them got off, right. as you pointed out. And about seven, I think the number now is seven have received letters of censure, and one was kicked out of the college. And we we essentially ended his medical legal career. I think the more effective way to do it, though, in all honesty, is to, to have the hospital itself, to, to have the hospital have a policy that says, if you are going to use our name in, you're going to use your letterhead, I, I use our hospital's letterhead when I send my letters out. So the hospital should say, if you're going to use our letterhead, you're by implication saying that we agree with your testimony, that, that, that you are endorse practicing, you, you. In, you endorse you. And as such, we need to have every letter of, of um, uh, an expert letter, every letter of opinion that you submit, we want you to submit it to your chairman and have it um, presented at your, your monthly oh, meeting. that's kind of interesting. Because now what happens is it's one thing in an uh, anonymous courtroom to stand up and make ridiculous assertions. It's another thing to make it to your peers and to your colleagues and... To say, because then what you can ha- very clearly say is, as, as a chairman of my department, I can say, Dr. Henry, do you honestly believe that that's the standard of care? You can either say to me, yes, I honestly believe that every patient who's got a temperature requires, you know, three sets of blood cultures. And I can say, well, then I can't have you practicing in my department because that's inappropriate care and you're going to lose your job. 
which is has got some implications to it. Now, if if it's a borderline thing where you and I disagree, you like TPA, I don't. I like TPA, you don't. Something along those lines, the whole department's going to say, you know what, this is a legitimate argument, can't argue it. But if you're going to make these, and we don't really care, I, I, I don't really care. If you're an expert and you make legitimate arguments, God bless you, you should be doing it. Every child needs a rectal. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But if you start making the, the obtuse arguments, now you've got to defend it to the rest of the staff. And, and more importantly, that goes out to the medical staff. So the medical staff now says, hey, you know, Dr. Dr. Jones, the pulmonologist, you know, he's doing a lot of this medical expert stuff. He's doing plaintiff stuff. He's making ridiculous claims. I don't think I want him seeing my patients. So their practices actually suffer. And if you're at Yale, you're at Harvard, you're at wherever, and you're this big Ivy League, big mahaf, you have to be able to stand up in front of your colleagues and say, you know, I honestly believe that the standard of care is to get a CT pulmonary angiogram on every 20-year-old with dyspnea and wheezing and a fever. Uh, you, you're Here, going to have. Here's the problem with that: if they are from uh, Harvard or Yale, that may actually be what's happening at Harvard or Yale, but that doesn't represent the standard of care at the average hospital in in the in the state. I, I, but I tend to agree with now. What we're talking about here is egregious testimony. Right. Right. And and yeah, this is done in secret. This egregious testimony is done in secret. Right. Nobody hears it except the people in the jury and that other expert on the other side of the table. And he's the only one who can really do anything about it. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think that the issue is once you make this a little bit more public, you know what? Dr. Dr. Henry, if you truly believe this, you should have no problem with me putting this in the hospital newspaper or, you know, it going up in front of the medical, um, uh, the, the yearly medical staff meeting. And then what happens is, you know what, as part of our, our yearly monthly medical staff meeting, we are going to present all the expert testimony. It's going to be available. Anybody can read it. Well, you know, I've, I've seen guys who, there, we used to have a surgeon on staff who did, you know, a lot of plaintiff's expert t- testimony, but he did it, you know, we're in New Jersey, he would do it in Minnesota, he was all around the country. Well, you know, it trickled back that that's what he was doing. His practice just shriveled up and he left town. And and that's, you know, I, I think there is a certain amount of that. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to punish you for being a plaintiff's expert. If you truly think somebody did something wrong, it's your job to stand up there and say they did it wrong and say why they did it wrong. But what you're trying to get is this, uh, you know, gun for hire type of mentality. In New Jersey, it's, it's funny, they have to have this... Um, certificate of merit so if you file a case before it can proceed you need a letter from a doctor that says i think this case has some merit over half the states now have that right right. which is useless i mean it's absolutely useless because these guys just rubber stamp them well there was one doc who just you know he wouldn't even read it the the plaintiff's attorney would send him the thing he'd sign it and off it went turned out he signed one against his own one of his colleagues (laughs) 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 he wasn't paying attention to it he signed it against one of his colleagues it was like okay you got a problem, buddy, you know, and, and I don't know whatever became of it, but that's that's something that you, you can. You well, actually, I, I think that our listeners basically should um, take heed to your recommendation because uh, I don't think submitting it to ASAP is going to happen with the frequency that it probably needs to because I think physicians are probably very reluctant to do that. But if you're doing it within your own group and your colleagues get to see what you're saying, 
and you know they start rolling their eyes at this kind of thing i think that that could be very effective and i think one of the things is you go to the medical staff and to take the bylaws and say if you want to use our name if you want to say i'm joe blow and i live with you know 27 elm street and this is my opinion that's one thing but if you at any point want to by inference uh say that yale university agree uh-huh. supports this opinion you got to get their permission to do it. I, I can't go out there and say, you know, Our Lady Lords Medical Center, which, which is where I work, you know, believes that I, um, uh, the uh, hyperpronation a- approach to reducing a nursemaid's elbow is absolutely the way to go. They, I can't say that. I can say it's my opinion that it's the way to go, but that doesn't but say... This gives you some element of credibility when you start bolting your name to some prestigious absolutely by the way there are ways to go about this and i hope that our listeners understand as you're working with your defense attorney they can ask an expert in deposition doctor you have no problem with us sending your testimony the from this deposition or subsequent trial testimony to your chairman of your department or to your, or to ASAP, or to someplace else for peer review. You agree with peer review, don't you, doctor? But but isn't that? Can't they fall back on? Oh no, this is you know th- th- this case is not public. My test, my um, deposition is not public. That's wrong. If it's a filed case, I could. Uh, people don't really understand this. If you filed a case in Washtenaw County, Michigan, and you give sworn testimony with a case number. I could take out space if I had the money in the New York Times and publish it. The medical record is protected of that patient, but uh, p- but sworn testimony is public record. All trial even testimony, depos- even, deposition. even deposition, and trial before testi- it goes to trial. Yep, absolutely, it is public record. Is that what happened to Paula Dean? She it was during a deposition. She whatever uh, the big blow up was. Yeah. Um, By the way, what is the standard of care in racism? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to oh, know. Oh, come on. Isn't give it? this lady a break. This lady that, was railroaded yeah. like she was, no business. Uh, yeah. Paula, hey, listen, I love Paula. I eat her stuff. Uh, it's called butter. It's called yeah. butter. <laughs> and and uh, she was a victim. There's no question about it because it, the politically correct people. They don't even were, know the word she said. It was probably 15 years ago Yeah. The, the, when, the, when the, she won the trial. Yeah. yeah, of course. In terms of this element of it. Right, right. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. There's such ganging on. Yeah, I, I think that people up. like to be to be popular. It's interesting that most of the um, African-American uh, advocates, uh, you know, public advocates came to her defense. The, you know, the people who you never thought would all said, listen, you know, it's, you know, how many years ago things changed? People say things they didn't mean. It was, it was amazing. It was they really all, a shame. Yeah, I thought. it was. But yeah. getting back to, to the other point, though, I think... The way you make these experts accountable is to say, in your own backyard, um, you know, would you be willing to have people hear you say this? Because that's where there may be some consequences. They're not going to be, you you need to have it where there are consequences. But, you know, one of the things that I think drive all of this is the fact that the money made in testifying is so easy and, and it's so lucrative that you want that attorney to invite you to do other cases. Sure. And you're willing to bend over a little backwards in terms of little. 
what you declare to be the standard of care. Yeah, we're not going to describe anything else here, Rick. But just say they bend over. Yeah. Okay. See, the, the, the interesting thing is when I look at this, what comes to mind is if you were to design this from scratch, you would say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a pool of experts in <laughs> any given area. You are going to randomly get assigned three experts from that pool. This way, it's an odd number. You can have, you know, there can be some difficulties, some discussions and everything else. But you don't get to pick the experts. That's, those are randomly, well, we will have criteria for what you can qualify as an expert. You, maybe it's an obligation to be on the medical society or whatever you have to do this. But you get three picked. When you go to trial, you don't get to pick your judge. You get assigned. Now, if you've got political correct connections, you may be able to finagle something. But in general, if you're Joe Blow, your judge gets assigned to you. Some judges favor letting this evidence judge. in. Yeah. yeah. Some of them favor letting this evidence in. Some of them don't. You know, th that can affect the case. Same thing with the experts. You don't get to pick your expert because I, you know, if I screw up, I can find somebody who's going to say I didn't screw up. You know, I, and if, if, I have a bad outcome, plaintiff can find an expert who said I did something wrong. It may right. be totally unrelated, but they can find I did something wrong. That's not what we want. What we're looking for is an honest answer. So the, the best example I can see is if you know, I go to jury duty and they pick me on the jury and the jury is, the guy built a bridge and it, it fell down. So okay, and I, don't, I know a little bit about science, I'm not an engineer. So the, the expert from Carnegie Mellon gets up there and says, he did everything absolutely right expert from Virginia Tech gets up there and says, oh my God, his soundings were wrong and everything else. What do I know? I know this, to me, it looks like it's a 50-50 battle when the reality of it may be he did everything wrong. You know, this guy from Carnegie Mellon's just, you know, blowing smoke. I don't know. So in what I really need is I need three unbiased people to look at this and say, this is what this guy did. Well, you also need a jury of your peers. Well, yeah, but that's not going to happen. Right. Yeah, that, but, you're, but what you're saying is not going to happen either. No. Well, it might. You, you, can, you can make it up. And here's where it might. If you look at what happened in New York, and I, I think this is fascinating, New York came up with their business court. And the reason they did is because business was grinding to a halt because, you know, I couldn't borrow money because somebody had some suit against me and, and these things were dragging on for five, ten years. And so nobody could do any business. And what they said was, okay, this is ridiculous. We're going to have a court where the judge has some expertise in, in business or corporate law, whatever it is they, they, that the judges have, and we're going to get these cases done quickly. You're, you're just going to bang them through. And so now, you know, if you're um, a businessman in New York, you don't have some frivolous little suit tying up your assets, you know, for years and years and years so you can't do anything with your business. And I think that you can absolutely set a medical court up because – Business law is as complicated as medical law, and you can have a judge who knows enough about that. You can have your, your unbiased experts, and you can bang these cases out. You, if you and I look at a chart, okay, we don't need a 15 depositions to know what happened in that case. Exactly. I mean, you and I can look <coughs> at this thing and go, maybe ask two or three questions, let the, 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 um, uh, the defense attorney or the plaintiff's attorney ask those questions of their client and come back with it. And then bottom line is we can we could clear up the backlog in a couple of months just by looking. I, I pick up a chart. Okay, the guy ordered an x-ray of the, of the um, ankle. He didn't do a description of the ankle, but he ordered an x-ray of the ankle. He must have examined it. He must have thought something was going on. You know, therefore, he, he did it, but he didn't document it on the chart. I can look at that and figure that out. I don't need... You know, 500 depositions from the, the guard in the parking lot all the way up to the, the person who was working in, in the x-ray suite that day. 
So you could you could clean this up dramatically, but then I mean it's it's just such a lucrative. It, it's a screwed up system that's making money. And one of my my laws has always been, if something doesn't make any sense at all. Somebody somewhere is making a lot of money off of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you realize if there's one lawyer in a small town, he starves. Two lawyers, they both do well. <laughs> they can sue each other forever. You got hey, listen, it. You got any uh, uh, Pete's tips for us? Pete's is getting actually kind of interesting. Um, I, I think um, pediatric emergency medicine is probably got it more wrong than any other specialty in uh, within our field. And it's, it's kind of interesting the way you look at it. If you look at a, a pulmonologist, the pulmonologist doesn't come to the internist and the family practitioners and say, I need to see all your asthmatics. What does he or she say? They say, send me your tough ones. You know, the, the guy you can't control, the guy that's always bouncing in. Let me help you with that one. We'll consult on the difficult cases. You got it. Right. What PZM did is they came along and said, hmm. We need to see every kid who comes into an emergency department. So every, every community hospital now has a pediatric emergency department. We, well, by the way, not defensible in any study. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there are plenty of us who weren't trained in peds who saw thirty or 40,000 kids in our career. Sure. Our outcomes were no different than anybody else's. Well, it, it gets even more, more strange now. Um, what you have is if you look, our PAs see probably about 25, maybe 30% of our peds cases. They've that's got, all. Yeah, yeah, they may even see more than that. That's the only. That's because they don't work twenty four seven. They have. Um, uh, they go to college. They go two years of PA school. They come out. Their outcomes are identical to a PDM fellow who see who does, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of residency, three years of fellowship. It sounds like well, you've trained them well. Yeah. Why would <laughs> Why would you Why would you take all that expertise, and turn them loose to see pharyngitises and viral xanthems? What I really want out of a PZM person, and, and I, I really like the, the specialty, I like the additional training, is I want a couple of things. Number one, I want somebody to look over my shoulder and say, yep, you're still up to speed. You know, and I want somebody to say, oh, Al, we changed the dose of amoxicillin from 60 to 100 milligrams to 90 milligrams so per kilogram. So real dose. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah make sure they ex- Exactly. The you want somebody, I want somebody to look over my shoulder with that and help me with that. And if possible, if I'm busy enough, I'd love to work some shifts with them. So I can bounce stuff off real time. And I, and I can show them some things. They're not used to doing uh, a lot of, of orthopedic or whatnot. I can, I can help them with that. So I need them to do that. I need them to be a consultant on the tough case. The kid that comes in with a liver transplant who now has an elevated ammonia level. Well, you know, I want their help but Al, there. They're going to go to maybe 200, 300 hospitals in the United States. The vast majority, if you're in Keokuk, Iowa... You can't have a, a med peds person 24 hours a day in the department. You right. can't do it. But here's but that's why they can help us with doing some some um, you know reviews and, and help us periodically come in, give me a lecture, say what's new, what's hot. At Telemedicine. You. Yeah. So the guy it. in Keokuk can push a button, show the kid to a, a, a med peds guy, and and get a consult at that moment in time. That's even better. It, we, do, we have a paper coming out where we looked at we said, what's the impact if you take, in a community, you take 10 PDM graduates, you put them at two, hosp- or, um, two hospitals, they create a PDD, and that's all they do. Versus you take those 10 guys or girls and you spread them throughout the whole community so that they have, if, if there's a, a hospital that's busy enough to give them a shift, 
they work a couple shifts there. If not, they come in once a month, go over cases, review some, some difficult cases. You send them things to review. It turns out that if you take and you use your PDM people, just like you do every other consultant, what you wind up with is you can impact five times the, the number of, of um, uh, children than you do if you just put them in a couple of silos and make all the patients try and come to them because it's not going to happen. And, and I think that's where we missed the boat. But, and I was talking to, to um, uh, one of the, the uh, chairman at one of the Peds, um, big Peds hospitals, and, and her comment was, she said, I tell my residents or my, my fellows when they're coming out, don't go find a, a, a slot in a PDD and just see patients. Your goal is to find a hospital system and become a resource to that hospital, to every ER in that hospital makes system, sense. which makes sense. That's, that, I think, is, is where they really should be doing it. Because actually, I've seen in Los Angeles <coughs> efforts to make PEDS ERs where they would, uh, and they were largely marketing attempts, to oh, yeah, tell you the truth, yep. where they would bring over some really well-known pediatricians. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact is they just couldn't support them. No, you, you, you really can't. And the reality of it is you got better. I, I trained in emergency medicine. Part of my training was to see kids. You know, now all of a sudden I can't see kids. I, oh, by the way, I also can't see trauma because I'm not a trauma surgeon. The, trauma did the same thing. Of course they did. And, and just remember that in the pediatrician's offices around the city all day long, most of their patients are being seen by NPs yep. or PAs yeah. or some advanced practice person. I know a lot of those guys who they'll see one in 20 visits. Sure. Because they don't want to be going over head circumferences, which are normal. They don't want to look and see if their immunizations are up to date. Mm -hmm. The doc should be to back up very simple medical yep. care. Actually, that's what's going to need to happen in primary care. Sure. Of course. But but if you look at, here's the, here's the thing. What you want to have is you want to have everybody who's trained to do something doing what they can do and nobody else can do. So if I'm a trauma surgeon, the only thing I should be doing is stuff that nobody else can do. When you look at the MASH hospitals, the way they set them up, they don't let the trauma surgeon into the trauma receiving area. There's one surgeon allowed in there. He just picks the order in which cases are going right. up. Because in that area, they get intubated, they get chest tubes, they get lines placed, they get you know, fractures reduced, they get bleeders clamped off. I can do that as an emergency physician. I can't do a laparotomy. You know, I can't do a thoracotomy. But I have somebody who can. So it's a waste to put a surgeon down there when they can be up in the OR doing surgical procedures. And same thing we've done <coughs> throughout emergency medicine. There's an awful lot I can do. You shouldn't have to have a PZM person come down and see, uh, you know, treating, uh, as I said, viral xanthems or diaper rashes. Just not going to, you know, be effective use of their, their talents. Well, Al, I wish you had some real opinions. That's true. I, I mean, this you got to come out of your shell and talk. I mean, we're going to help enough. you here. We're going to help you. It's always good to see you. Thank you, gentlemen. Th thanks for the always input. Always a pleasure to stop by. And, uh, and again, congratulations on uh, your great scientific assembly. You are a, uh, a jewel of emergency medicine. Oh, God, thank you. Okay, guys, let's wrap up the November issue with a case from Dr. Henry. Doctor, go ahead, please. Well, well you know, Rick, whenever we're here at the, uh, at the ASAP national meeting, we get to run into some of our subscribers, and they're not shy, I should say that, about making sure of what they want. They want their 
letters answered, and they want cases. So for all of you out there who are into cases, let me give you a recent decision. And we're talking about fairly recent stuff here a couple of months ago. Here's the case. Uh, it is from the state of Maryland. In fact, it's the University of Maryland Medical Center. Uh-oh. Uh, two th- uh, 2007 case. You know what? This is the, sorry about that. This is, uh, this is a public record case where pressing on the neck during spinal tap was blamed for two herniated discs. This was a uh, $650,000 Maryland verdict. And I'll tell you what, Rick, I have never heard of this before in my entire life. What happened was the the uh, plaintiff was age 47 at the time of trial, went to the emergency room of the University of Maryland Medical Center and uh, with a severe headache. He was determined that a spinal attack was required. The plaintiff claimed that the emergency room team pressed on uh, her neck, it's a she, while uh, administering the spinal tap, which caused two herniated discs in her neck. Now, that's what we used to call the Quackenstead maneuver. Uh, and we could actually press on the neck and actually see the pressure rise in the, in the manometer. Now, I have never heard anybody talk about causing herniated discs in the neck with this procedure. Whatever it was and why, ever, why it happened, I can't tell you except that the jury bought this for reasons which are totally beyond me. Now, what is there a take-home from this? <laughs> yeah, don't practice medicine. Number two, uh, the Quackenstead probably has little, if any, purpose, uh, except if you think that the manometer is not reading correctly, I suppose you could try it. But how they were able to convince a jury that, that's, that neck... Uh, discs were, 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 were ruptured in this case is totally beyond me. Isn't that bizarre? Well, yes, it is bizarre. So I'm wondering what the take-home message is here. But before I get down to that level, uh, I must have forgot the Quackenstead maneuver 50 years ago. Can you help me out here? Yes, 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 yes. If you push on the carotid arteries, you do increase intracranial uh, pressure. That intracranial pressure is reflected. So when you stick your needle in, you're going to see a rise in that pressure uh, reflected down where you've done the spinal tap. And some people would say that the Quackenstead showed that you had excellent movement. There was nothing blocking the uh, pathways and that, that you had a free flow of fluid because we all remember from physics that pressure in a fluid media is distributed equally. So if it's pushing against one side with one degree of pressure, it's pushing against all fluid in that system with the same degree of pressure. That's why your hydraulic brakes work. Well, you know, uh, I know that if you block the external jugular veins, then the pressure builds up in the head Right, because there's no the blood's pumping in, but there's no there's some there's some egress issues, so the pressure would rise. That's for sure. And the um, but I'm not sure about pressing the arteries. Why would anyone ever do that? But the point is, Rick, when you push on uh, on the veins, 
the way you find the veins is you're feeling for the arteries and you're going to push next to that and it's done bilaterally in the neck as you slide your fingers along the arteries the next thing you get are the veins okay well uh sounds like this case was moved from maryland to be tried in uh, philadelphia (laughs) (laughs) i can't it it does sound absolutely wacky i don't know that there is a take-home message here all right well in any event i thought our readers would like a uh, bizarre weirdo case uh, do we need another one? Cause I've got another one. If we give need me it. another one. Yes, sir. Right. Now you got five minutes. Okay. This is a failure to diagnose unstable angina, uh, blame for a death. Well, there's no more common case in emergency medicine than, than, than chest pain lawsuits. They're still sort of number one failure to diagnose. And it was interesting to note that in this case, the claim was, that the reason the patient died was they didn't make the diagnosis early enough. What the defense claim was, we're working up the case when the patient went downhill. And uh, this is also, again, a Maryland jury. Uh, There's no reason to give the name of the case or the doctors involved in this case. But the jury came back and and, uh, confirmed the fact that doctors do require a certain amount of time. And that the giving of heparin in this patient until they had a reasonable suspicion of diagnosis uh, or getting him transferred to a center which could do a cath on the patient, they just did not have enough time. And I think that when given the proper information, juries can make intelligent decisions. And if you look at the names involved in this case, there are major players in emergency medicine on both sides of this issue and the uh, the physicians prevailed so you know reasonable workup uh, still takes a certain amount of time and the public understands that and the assertion was that um, heparin should have been given uh, earlier than it was Is yes that- exactly and and as was pointed out uh, uh, several times in the trial heparin is not a benign drug <clears throat> depending on what your chest pain is from, uh, you can make a, a, a sick guy dead with heparin if you're not exactly sure what you're looking at. And, and I think that that's correct. I, I mean, what if they'd given that heparin early on and the patient had died? I mean, wh- where are we going to go with that in, in court? Well, the last I heard, uh, heparin is not particularly effective in aortic dissections. Yes, and- it's very poor in aortic dissection. And this is one of the big three, aortic dissections, pulmonary embolism, and acute coronary syndrome. And clearly, mathematically, there uh, is a much lower risk of a dissection. Um, and last year in our course, we did a half hour on atypical aortic dissections. And there, you can get a case where the chest x-ray is normal. About 10% of the cases, the chest x-ray will be normal. And there is this phenomenon where you can get a type A dissection that does occlude the coronary ostia so that it could kind of uh, be, uh, befuddle the uh, diagnosis. And I also believe that there is some challenge to the value of heparin in uh, some of these uh, cases. So well, those I things think, being... I think hep- Rick, I don't think heparin has been shown to uh, change the outcome that much at all. I, I mean... Uh, 
If you want to give thrombolytics, that's one thing. If it's within the first hour and 20 minutes, I know what I want for me, and, and I want to go to the cath lab if they can do that. <laughs> that seems to me still statistically the best treatment. So I guess there's a message here, which is uh, do not rush to judgment uh, when, in fact, one of the therapies may be absolutely contraindicated in the, one of the potential diagnoses that are being considered. And the other thing is, is how long was this person in distress uh, with this chest pain? If it, if it was like, you know, for three or four or five hours prior to the arrival in the emergency department, you know, how can you say that the, had the heparin been given a little sooner, it would have really made a difference? I think a reasonable jury would have been convinced that that time frame would not have uh, affected the outcome. Well, that's what the, uh, that's one of the defense claims was, this MI started before the patient ever hit the emergency department. And uh, you're right, this can look confusing. If you've, got, uh, if you've got a dissection which is dissecting retrograde into the, into the ostea uh, of the arteries that's uh, you know, right next to the aortic valve, uh, you can look like an MI for all the world. Um, and one of the claims of the defense was that by the time they got a hold of this patient, um, the die was cast here, and that they were not going to reverse the, uh, the myocardial infarct. Okay, Gregory, thanks for those uh, two little gems. Um, I think that uh, our time is up, and we're going to move on to the last infinite segment of Risk Management Monthly. Well, Rick, it's time for Wine of the Month. Uh, we're here, as you, as you have pointed out, at the uh, ASEP meeting in Seattle. State of Washington, do you know, is the second largest producer of wines in the United States. No, I didn't know that. Yes, they are. They've got lots of great wines. And, you know, when you're in Napa and things like that, they sort of consider themselves the, the Rolls Royce of the wine industry in America. But there's great stuff. There are great reds. There are great cabs that come from this region of the world itself. And keeping on, uh, keeping up with Mel Herbert's uh, uh, dictum, which is, Greg, cheap wines, cheap wines, cheap wines. I'm not going to go through the expensive stuff, but I would point out that while we've been here at the meeting, almost all the wines they pour at the receptions uh, are Washington State wines. They're, some of them are excellent. And the one I would go back to, which everybody says, well, it's Publian, it's pedestrian, it's this, that, and other. You know, Columbia Crest is still a consistent producer of great wines. And the, the guys who really are the great wine critics of America will say, for, for example, the Columbia Crest, and the reason I'm quoting this is because... Uh, uh, this is what we were drinking last night. Uh, the Columbia Crest Chardonnay Reserve 2011. This is selling for, for less than 20 bucks a bottle. They carry it at Costco. It's an 89 to 92 rated wine. I can find you all kinds of them that are, uh, that are four and five times that much per bottle. Why would you spend that kind of money? After all, in two weeks or two two hours, it's urine. 
So you might as well drink something that tastes good and doesn't cost you a lot of money. So the Columbia Crest Chardonnay is what we're pushing this month. Is this what you get the commission on? I I'm pushing not, when you say pushing. I do not get a commission. <laughs> nobody nobody is, is paying me for this. But I was you thinking... Do you have a conflict of interest <clears throat> to declare? Do not have a conflict of interest. And I wouldn't expect if we were in San Francisco, they'd be serving probably a California wine. But here in Washington, they're very proud of their wine industry. Actually, they're very proud of a lot of things up here. And I think that... Uh, Many, much of it is uh, well-deserved. Yes. Uh, we're the uh, largest producer of apples in the United States. Uh, they have some nifty health care systems. They get a very... Um, Puget Sound. Uh, and is it, where's Kitts Harbor? He's in Oregon. That's the same thing, isn't it? No, no. you got to drive. you got to turn... A, you know, if you head toward the Pacific Ocean, turn right to the left. left and drive south, right. you run okay. into Kitts Harbor. Yeah. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye.